As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's illegal to tamper with a car's odometer, and the reason the state revoked the license of a Milwaukee auto dealer. Contact 6. Stop by its address. That's all news to you? That's all news to me. How the crime works and the number of vehicles with miles rolled back. And doing the application is very simple, it's very short, very straightforward. You can still apply for student loan debt relief, even though a court temporarily blocked the plan. Coming up, who qualifies for loan forgiveness and how scammers are already trying to take advantage. You have to call this number and give your information, otherwise you're going to miss out. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Brian. We also have, of course, Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hello. We have a couple of big stories to talk about today, but first, Jenna, I understand your Contact 6 segment recently marked a really big milestone. Tell us about that. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> Do you want the DJ air horn? Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, we're really excited because we have this off-air resolution process where we try to pursue resolutions for all of our viewers who reach out to us um, with different businesses, whether it be contractors or warranty companies and so on. And last month, we surpassed a half million dollars in money back for our viewers. I mean, then look at this then. I can't imagine a more beautiful thing. This is money that they say we help them to put back in their pockets. And that's really exciting for us because we've never done that before. We've never reached a half million. And it, it's still going. We're at about 550 now. Um, so I'm just really proud of our team and all the hard work that our case manager, Annette, is putting in, responding to every person who reaches out to us and trying to seek a resolution for everybody involved fair for the business too, but I'm just glad that whatever we're doing is working and that it's helping people. You know, what, what gets me is so much of what you do as Contact 6 never makes it on the air. You, you do so many stories that are on the air and yet there's so much work behind the scenes that you're doing on behalf of consumers and have for so many years. I'm glad we get a chance to talk about that a little bit here because it's not just the dollar amount, but for some people, the dollar amount might be very small, but still very significant. And then in other cases, you have these big dollar things, but when it adds all up, obviously a lot of great stuff is going on behind the scenes. Well, thank you so much for saying that. A lot of our resolutions are $400, $500, and not everybody's refrigerator repair is going to warrant a story on Fox 6 News. Um, you know, it's important to us and it's important to them. Um, but you're right, a lot of it goes on behind the scenes. And I think that's really cool that our station invests the time and the people to do that kind of work. And we've been doing it for 50 years. This is our 50th anniversary of the segment. What a fun milestone to hit on such a, you know, 
a marked year of 50 years. And I will say that in those resolution stories that we, we do air on Fox 6, I always kind of chuckle because, you know, we have a story that we kind of share and then it's like, we also saved money on concert tickets, uh, refrigerator, you know, like you list about Cruise eight lines. things and right. it's just a small percentage of, of the work that's done behind the scenes. And, and I, point, I point out that it's not just the money back that is part of this either, though, because the first story we're going to talk about today isn't about getting money back for someone. So in addition to all the resolutions and things you're doing on behalf of consumers, you're also covering some really important consumer issues. And this is one, any, anyone who's bought a car, one of the things that you look at, especially buying a used car, what, what you're looking at is, okay, well, how many miles are on it? How, you know, how much wear and tear does this thing have? How long is this thing going to last me? It is one of the first things you check. The odometer but obviously there are criminals out there finding ways to roll back the miles and falsify titles. Um, that is what this story is all about. Uh, tell me a little bit about this one and how it came about. Right, um, and you're right, it all comes down to value and what's on the odometer is an indication of how much the car should cost and how long it may last you. And this started with a press release that the state sent out, the DOT, one week ago, saying that it had revoked the motor vehicle dealer license for Marywood Investments, which Context X found out operates a business called Marywood Auto at First and Burley. It was just a, a half-page press release and the state said the reason they revoked the license was title and odometer fraud. And we learned from that release that Mary Wood was um, found to be rolling back odometers and falsifying title documents before selling vehicles. And I was interested for more information, so I wrote back to the DOT and they shared a bit more saying that a state investigator had come across 168 different vehicles with odometer discrepancies. And as part of that investigation, um, the investigator recommended that Marywood's license be revoked, and that went into effect in August, and the decision was upheld um, during a hearing in September. And there, there were uh, every station probably got this press release, but we paid attention to it, and I think we're the only ones that reported on it um, because we had some interest in it. And the first interest is there's a consumer impact, and, and that's what I do. The odometer reading is an important part of the sale, and it's important information for the consumer. And often those who are hardest hit by odometer fraud, we know are those who are least able to afford costly repairs because they're buying these older vehicles. And the other reason we were interested in this press release is because it sounded awfully familiar. And that's because one of our reporters, Bill Miston, had these search warrants he'd obtained over the summer that detailed a search at Marywood Auto as part of an investigation into odometer fraud. Now, largely those search warrants were related to a drug investigation, but a portion of it related to a search of Marywood Auto. So we knew that both the state and law enforcement were concerned that Marywood was rolling back odometers. Now we had some confirmation that action had been taken by the state, and we had more information in those search warrants that helped us put together a more comprehensive report and provide more detail to our viewers about what led up to this. So when the state went to take action to revoke the license, did Marywood Auto do anything to fight that? No, actually, they everyone who has their license revoked um, when it comes to auto dealers, they have 30 days to appeal that decision and attend a hearing. Marywood Auto did not do that. They did not fight this at all. Um, I did speak with the owner of the business. He told me he was bad at mail and he did not realize there was a hearing. So that's the reason he gave. But um, without Marywood putting up a fight, they finalized their decision to revoke the license. I, I, we're going to talk more about Marywood itself, but I want to actually 
for a moment, jump ahead and talk about sort of a bigger picture thing, which is when you talk about odometer fraud, the first thought I had is, well, cars don't have mechanical odometers anymore. We say roll back, but you can't physically go and roll back a digital odometer. So how are they doing this? Uh, or, or are these just really old cars? I mean, how how, how do they accomplish an odometer rollback at all? And, and sort of how do you, you make sure that a car you're buying doesn't have this issue? So there's a couple of ways this can happen. Typically, these people, you could say criminals, will buy high mileage vehicles and then they take them back to a different location where the vehicles are cleaned up to make them more attractive. They polish them, give them some new paint, some new tires, and they'll also alter the odometer to show a false and lower mileage. And that can be done a few different ways depending on the car. Um, one way is disassembling the car's dashboard and resetting the odometer to a lower mileage um, using a tool that reprograms it. Um, it can also be done without getting into two information by swapping a part from that car with a part from a car that has lower mileage. Again, uh, you know, it's not like you can't find this stuff online, but you know, I don't want to teach yes, people. We're, how to we're trying not to coach them on how, but at least an understanding that this is something that can there's be done. a swapping of a part or you can use a, a tool. Um, and then another problem is that People who spin odometers know how to launder a title history by transferring vehicle ownership from state to state in some cases, making it difficult for investigators to determine when and where a fraud occurred and that information um, was changed at some point. Um, so the information could be wrong on the title as well as the odometer. Um, so that makes it even more difficult to figure out if a car has um, been tampered with. When you are, and I want to talk more about Marywood in a moment, but if you are going to buy a car, I mean, you know, you can't know if they've swapped out a part. You can't maybe know some of those things. Are there signs? I mean, how can you sort of maybe get a clue that this might be a car where the odometer has been tampered with? Sure. So the first thing you can do is make sure the, the mileage on the odometer is higher than the mileage that's listed on the title. You can also go to Carfax and they do free odometer accuracy checks. And another part is just to do your regular due diligence, test drive the vehicle, have your own mechanic inspect it. And when they do, ask them if they think the condition of the vehicle matches up with the mileage. Uh, so those are just a few things you can do. And the DOT likes to always say, you are allowed in our state to request information about the previous owner, contact information about the previous owner of a vehicle. So you could get the phone number of the person who owned that vehicle last and call them and ask them um, what the car was like, what the odometer should, should read, um, which I think is something a lot of us didn't realize. So we talked about, you know, how, how Marywood Auto, you know, the, the owner, bad with mail, missed the court hearing, didn't know about it, all that, wasn't able to fight the, the revocation. So what else did he have to say when even you brought up you brought up the search warrants too did you ask him about that i did so robert woods is the registered agent and he did take phone calls from me about this report but he would not go on camera and basically he denied um being involved in any of this he didn't deny that it happened but he denied being involved he said no tampered vehicles were sold or available on his lot and he blamed someone he called an outside contractor whom he said listed mary wood's name on titles when he bought vehicles at auction and we know from those search warrants that mary wood's name was on a number of titles um, that were questionable with the odometers and robert said several times you know this man is not his employee um, and he no longer contracted 
with him. Um, so that's basically what he's saying. He's pointing to someone he says um, was kind of an outsider, but contracted with, with the business and, and listed his business on the titles. It sounds to me like what he's saying here is, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I'm not responsible. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. And, you know, there are a number of different names listed in the search warrants. I'm not reporting them right now because uh, there has there's no criminal charges against any of those people yet. There's also a second auto dealer named in those documents who's also under investigation. I asked the state if anything was being done about that auto dealer, and they said they had nothing to share at this time. So it may not be just Marywood, but I'm, I'm monitoring uh, CCAP, which is where we can see if criminal charges have been filed against any of these people. I can say none have been filed against Robert Woods at this point, um, but I'm, I'm definitely going to keep track of that and see if this leads to criminal charges. So we talked a little bit about, you know, at the top, kind of just the what prompted the state to take action against Marywood Auto in the first place. But like, how many vehicles are we talking? Is it is it five? Is it a hundred? You know, do you know how many? We have some indication. Um, from the state, they told me at least 168 vehicles had been uncovered on their end. The search warrants reveal a bit more. Um, they show at least 150 vehicles over the last two years had been found with um, high mileage and then later sold with lower mileage, indicating evidence of odometer tampering. And among those 150 plus vehicles, uh, over 16 million miles were removed. And the search warrant said those vehicles were sold to victims all over the country, including in Wisconsin, but also Illinois and Indiana. What happens for the people who bought those vehicles? I, I assume they have redress in the courts. Is that really the only option is to to sue what is now a closed auto dealer? That is a really good question, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer it. Often it does go to court. I know they keep track of these things at the state level. Um, you can file complaints with the state, um, with the DOT, and they try to mediate different issues. But yeah, I imagine this might end up in court. I know I took some things a little bit out of order here on you, uh, uh, Jenna, but really in the, in the end, Marywood Auto is one auto dealer, and there are a lot of used car dealers out there. And, and really, what you want to make sure is when you go to buy a car, you can rely on that number. I mean, that is a the, mileage is a really important number in the buying process, isn't it? It is. And when you buy a used car in our state, which a lot of these vehicles are, you don't have a ton of recourse if something goes wrong with it. So the odometer is a very important part of determining if this car is going to work for you because there's no lemon law that covers used autos in Wisconsin, it, unless your car breaks up down on the drive home, you're probably not going to be able to prove that the issue existed the moment you bought it, which is what you have to do to get a refund on a vehicle, uh, a used vehicle. So it's, it's just especially important that that information that consumers have to consider at the time of purchase be accurate. And, and based on what you said earlier, also important then to have a mechanic independently check it out before you're making that purchase, right? Absolutely. And I know it seems like an extra step. And you think in this competitive buying market, maybe I'm going to lose out on this vehicle if I say, well, I want to take it to my own mechanic. And whenever I've talked to consumer advocates about that, they say, well, maybe that should be an indication that you don't want to buy that car in the first place. If they say, no, you can't take it off the lot. Well, then maybe you should pass. I will say that's one last thought. Like, thankfully, like, 
2022, the year we're in, there are lots of resources. And like you said, you know, searches you can do on the internet and different resources to help you better vet the car, the vehicle before you make that big purchase. Right. There's a lot of information about individual vehicles and what you can even expect at that mileage, right? And I think the most important thing is you talk to someone you trust and also do your research on the dealer and whether they have any complaints. Um, the BBB is a good resource um, or, or the state keeps track of that kind of thing. You could also call DATCAP, the Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, and they'll tell you if they have a, a pattern of complaints against a particular vehicle. So I would advise researching not only the vehicle you're interested in specifically, but also the dealer. When it comes to rolling back, let's talk about another controversial kind of rollback. In this case, it's one that's impacting a lot of people. That is rolling back student loan debt. Debt relief, it's uh, now something that is in the federal appeals court, which temporarily blocked President Biden's plan to offer student loan debt relief. In the meantime, the Education Department's still processing applications for that debt relief. So let's start with the basics. Who is supposed to qualify for student loan forgiveness in the first place? A lot of people. Um, according to some reporting by Sam Kramer, another reporter at our station, this plan will cancel debt for 30% of Wisconsin borrowers and more than 200,000 people in the state. Um, basically, the Department of Ed is offering up to $20,000 in debt relief for federal Pell Grant recipients and up to $10,000 in debt relief to non-Pell recipients. And this applies to individuals who made less than $125,000 a year or families that make less than $25,000 a year. That's based on the numbers from 2021 or, or 2020. And this only applies to loan balances before June 30th, 2022. And you have until the end of 2023 to apply online for debt relief. It does get a little more complicated than that if you have different kinds of loans. Um, if there are loans not held by the federal government, like a Perkins loan um, held by a school or an older Stafford loan, um, those loans may be eligible for debt relief if the borrower consolidates. Um, but a good resource is often um, the student aid or student loan office at your college. I know Marquette University has been getting a lot of calls and offering a lot of advice to students and former students. What does that process look like? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, oh, I can apply for something, but man, the application makes my head want to blow up, you know? And so like, what does that process, what is that process like for people that are looking to apply? Is it easy? Is it super, you have to go back in your records 10 years, you know? No, actually, the process is super easy and super short. I think you could do it in five minutes. Um, basically, there's an online application and it, right now at the top of the page, it does say, you know, under court order, we are temporarily blocked from processing debt discharges, but they're saying keep applying and we'll review applications and when we're able to do so, we'll begin discharging debt again and you won't need to reapply. Um, but basically the application asks for your name, your social security number, your date of birth, phone number, and your email. And then it asks you to sign um, an agreement saying, I state that I qualify. And there will be some research done on the other end before they grant these loans, but that's, I mean, the loan discharge, that's it. It's really, really short, uh, short. and we, we did a report talking about scams, people who are trying to get you to pay them to help you with that process. And uh, it's so easy. 
the idea that you would have to pay someone to help you with this process is laughable because it is as simple as it gets. This is one of those cases where I can actually speak with some experience. I, I've uh, talked on the podcast before that I have three right now who are in college at the same time. And and one thing I was not sure of going in is, well, will they qualify because they're still in school? And the way it works, the, some of the loans that they've taken out prior to this year fall under that time frame that qualifies. And the process for applying, very simple. It's sort of like a once you fill that out now, you just wait to hear back and it's sort of out there in space somewhere. And and if it ever comes through, I guess we'll get the news. Uh, but uh, but two, two of the, uh, the boys in the family in particular have the federal loans uh, that would qualify. The process is very easy. A lot of what's happening with what's going to happen after that is, is sort of taking place in a place we can't even see. Right. And I will say some people should automatically qualify if they have recent documents on file, like a FAFSA, um, they should automatically just see their loan disappear. And that's the case for a woman we spoke with recently. But as you said, this is, you know, when you first did this story, this court order was not in place blocking it. Now it's in sort of a a state of limbo. It's apparently just on hold. And we're going to see how these federal um, uh, appeals go. Um, or the attempts to to block the plan. It it depends on who you ask and whether you think this plan is fair or not. Um, There's a lot of controversy out there. Some people are angry that it didn't apply to them, or some people say it doesn't go far enough. So there's a lot of different opinion about it. Uh, But in the meantime, the government is operating under the assumption that this is going to continue once those challenges in court uh, are are moved beyond. So we talked about a little bit, or you mentioned about how the... um you know, just in any scenario like this, there's always someone who's trying to do something that isn't very nice. And so they're trying to take advantage of people who are either, you know, maybe not, they think they're computer illiterate or they don't know how to think they don't know how to apply for it. Um, and so you mentioned that letter that's saying, hey, come, you know, use our services and we'll help you apply. So what other, you know, what other kind of stuff do you see happening that might be, you know, considered scam like? Right. So pretty much any time there is a new government program or a change with a government program, you're going to see scammers stepping in to try to take advantage. We saw this with new Medicare cards a number of years ago and the confusion around that. So we have this new program. So there are going to be attempts by scammers to um, get money out of people, whether they're reaching out by email, text, or phone. And we were contacted by a woman named Lillian Rogers, who lives by the airport. She had gotten a letter in the mail, um, big final notice on the top, a confusing letter that basically announced the student debt relief plan, which she knew she qualified for. It included Lillian's uh, exact loan balance in there, which gives it um, an air of being authentic and says that by applying for a consolidation, she might automatically qualify. And it instructs her on how to create this FSA ID and tells her that she needs to call a phone number by this arbitrary deadline that's been set. I think it was like no- November 4th. And it's kind of hard to tell who the letter is coming from. It says there's an assigned department at the top, which makes it sound like it's a government letter. But if you look at the bottom, there's a mention of fees. And so if you look closely, you'll realize it's actually an ad for application assistance and document preparation. So basically, this is a business, a private company that's trying to get people to pay them to help them with their student loans, help them 
fill out this easy application. Um, and they're kind of banking on that confusion surrounding the program, people not understanding what they're supposed to do in order to qualify and saying, we'll just make it easier for you and we'll do it because they know that it's easy. But when whoever we talked to about this story, whether it was the Better Business Bureau, whether it was Marquette University, everybody said, this is so easy. Don't pay someone to do this for you. And don't share your FSA ID, which you don't even need to provide when applying for debt relief, but don't share that with anyone because you never know what they're going to do with it. And you never know if some of these people are after your private information as well, um, which can be really harmful to you. But the Department of Ed is warning people about it as well, saying um, you might get contacted by someone saying they're going to help you with loan forgiveness or cancellation or debt relief for a fee. You do not have to pay for help with your federal student aid. Only work with us or with um, your loan servicers and you know never reveal that personal information or password to anyone. I know there are some for whom going to the internet can be an intimidating thing and they like to do things by paper. But I know in situations like this, if you know there's a federal program that's offering money and you can proactively on your own go to a .gov website to find the links and the information, you're a little safer spot than responding to a mailer. Is that right? Right. I think um, we have a link on fox6now.com in our report we did on this subject, which will lead you right where to go. Um, there is a a, a very specific website you can go to, um, and you can report this fraud to the Department of Ed too, if it happens to you, by the way. Um, but I, I don't have the exact website in front of me, and I don't want to misspeak it, but I know we've got it online. And you can also, I know Marquette has it posted, a lot of other places have the link posted. So go to a, a place you trust, and they should have the link. Yeah, you, in this case, this particular letter you're talking about, were you able to actually get in touch with the sender of that letter? Oh, we did. Um, I called them, um, and surprisingly, I did talk to, to people. They transferred me around a lot, but I ended up speaking to someone who said, you know, we're not a scam, we're a document prep company. They compared themselves to the H&R block of student loans, basically saying, that's what we're like. We're like the high-end help that you, you need um, for this situation. Um, and I had asked them, how did you get her loan information? And the guy on the phone said, well, it's a matter of public record, not saying that's how we got it, which is interesting to me. Um, but when I followed up with officials, they said, actually, it should not be a, a simple matter of public record. Um, so that's questionable as well, that they knew her loan amount. Um, but basically, they followed up with me later. Someone official sent me a statement basically saying, we want to make sure everybody understands that we are not the government. These are not our programs. And we say that in the letter, which is true if you look at the bottom after you've gotten through all the bold That's print my question. Do they say it clearly? Is it prominent or is it hidden in the fine print? It's in the fine print at the bottom. I think if you're scanning this letter the first time, you won't see it. I think you have to take it word by word and be sure to read the bottom. But even then, sometimes people might not understand. And it, it toes the line. Some of these letters toe the line between providing factual and misleading information so closely that they may not be doing something illegal. It's just misleading, right? So there's enough in there that you're like, that's accurate. That information you provided is accurate. 
Um, but at the same time, you don't need to take the steps they're telling you to take. It's an option, but you don't have to take them. Well, H&R Block, is, since that's the example they gave, does not advertise themselves in a way that makes you think they're the IRS. You know they're a tax preparation service. If you know going in at the very top, this is a, we'll help you fill out your application and, and, and charge you a fee for that, that's one thing. If it's misleading, obviously, and they make you think they might be with the government, that's another thing, right? Right. And you don't know exactly what they're after. When you call them, they might ask for more information from you, and that can put you in a vulnerable position. So um, do it yourself. Um, I Obviously, we don't know how this is going to go, whether this program is going to go forward. I know the Biden administration announced more student loan changes. Um, so we'll, we'll see where all this goes in the courts. But obviously, there are a lot of people waiting to see what happens with student loans and a lot of people who will be affected. And that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. What do you have this week, Sarah? You know, I I feel like I'm a little predictable on these. And I know we just had Halloween. We're now into November. And one would think I'm going to ask about Halloween candy. But plot twist, I'm not. What? I know. Keep your Halloween candy comments to yourself. Reese's Peanut Butter. I was all prepared. <laughs> Baby Ruth's can go in the trash. Um... But my question does revolve around food, once again. Um, and this off-the-record question is from our editor extraordinaire, Dave Machuda. He asks, what is the best cereal to eat dry? I guess also I'll probably ask, what's the best cereal to eat with milk? But dry cereal, man, mm. I don't know some, how you guys feel about cereal. Some, but. I mean, like you, I, you can't eat, you can't eat raisin bran dry. I don't think. I mm -mm. agree. It cast, it has to be able to be pinched without like huh, uh, huh, bunches of oats. No, honey bunches of oats would mm -hmm. not be able to be eaten dry because it's so flaky. Delicious, but too flaky. I, I, I would. My first sort of inclination was something that I actually used to do as a kid would have been just Lucky Charms, but then you're mostly just fishing around for the marshmallows. Yeah. Although the, the other ones do kind of break up the uh, marshmallow sugary monotony. I'll tell you what, uh, you, what, you nice definitely, what you definitely can't eat dry is is frosted mini wheats. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love it with milk, but dry, I'm like. <laughs> eating a frosted like mini wheat without milk. Balls. Yeah, right. It is, it is like it is like trying to, to eat gauze. It just you can't. <laughs> get it down um it's but all my spit just gets sucked out of my mouth like at the dentist oh, so no. I, I i guess i would if i had to lean toward one all right i'm gonna go off the board one other one um captain crunch Ooh, that's good because it, all of it's got that sort of you know sugary coating until it cuts the inside of your mouth so right, hard true that, true yeah, okay. but i think you could eat captain crunch without milk i i mean i don't disagree jenna well i think the best ones to eat dry are obviously the ones that are not the best for you, mm. right? It's the ones that true. we used to buy yeah, in like the eight pack of mini boxes, Ooh, which yeah. I've been looking for recently for like a special treat for my kids because they get sugar cereal on Christmas as a special <laughs> treat. I don't make a breakfast. I just give them sugar cereal and they're like, this is great. Um, but you know, the, the Cocoa Puffs. Um, of course. Co corn Pops. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, uh, Fruit Loops. I mean, all the sugary stuff mm -hmm. is the stuff that tastes good dry. Oh, fruit But speaking fruit of frosted mini wheats, my kids eat those dry. They do. Do they? And it's, uh huh. I'm like, could you pick a more chokeable 
cereal to eat dry. Sometimes I snap them in half first, but they, yeah, they, they don't eat them with, uh, with milk. It's weird. Another one you can't eat dry is Rice Krispies. You just get a big oh, handful. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's I, very true. I feel like dry too. Okay, so I'm a big fan of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. However, if you mm. eat that dry, your hands get all Creamy. like cinnamony and sticky and stuff, which are fine, but you know. Well, Cinnamon Toast mm. Crunch is great with milk too because the milk then becomes like a cinnamon milk and it's... It's, yes. It actually becomes a lot like rum chata, which is, uh, but just like like an, <laughs> like an alcohol-free rum chata, it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I I will say that something I actually I hadn't thought about this. What I actually will eat without milk sometimes, just as a snack, is like a honey nut Cheerios, because mm, they're just yes. easy. They're they're delicious. They're they're simple. I don't it's know classic. if it's the greatest thing, but yeah, I, I do like Honey Nut Cheerios without milk. I never, I never pour a cup or a bowl of cereal and go, "Gosh, I am really feeling healthy today." That no part of me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really. A, I mean, it's it's delicious. Isn't it but... funny? You think back to when we were growing up, and that's how cereal was pitched as like a healthy breakfast. Start with cereal, and really, in most cases, I can't think of many cereals. The the only ones that might have been what was the uh, 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 grape nuts. Grape nuts oh. is like, to, yeah, but why would you want to eat that? I guess is what I, that's, I, grape nuts like to me was terrible. like kitty cat pellets or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I recently went off brand because cereal's gotten to be so much more expensive. And yeah. actually some of them are really good. Like you really can't tell. The frosted mini wheats, for example, those yes. taste exactly the same. That's what I'm saying. Like I, for me, I, maybe if I tasted them side by side, I'd be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. But as long as it's close enough, man, I'm a big fan of generic. And you guys, you guys are explaining precisely why my brother, who is the trademark lawyer, has a job. <laughs> <laughs> All of the knockoffs. But no, uh, I, I, I don't think I've actually had cereal on any kind of regular basis for many, many years. Um, it, but if I'm going to, it probably would be without milk grazing. So it's going to be something like a Cheerios or, or, or whatnot. Um, Lucky Charms, though, if you can get me a Lucky Charms with a lot of mar- like extra marshmallows, yeah, that's the way to go. All right, well, that was a good one this week. We didn't talk Halloween candy, um, I, you know, but uh, I will just get in there that peanut butter kisses. Next week's no. a new week, or, Brian, or. next week. <laughs> in any case, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Jenna, thanks for being on the podcast again. Of course. Sarah as well. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. Open Record.